July 3rd, 1918. I decide to go to France. Went out to Margaret's short course, and Marion Ferris was telling me that they were going to send 200 women to France for the YMCA. I immediately set to work getting an application in. I went to Washington last October to see if the Red Cross would take me, but they told me they were taking almost no women except nurses. I went home and settled myself to my work. But to know that I was really needed was the greatest thing in the world at last. I will leave no stone unturned. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today, I'm beginning a three-part series on American women's relief work during World War I, which began in the summer of 1914. Even before the United States officially entered the war three years later, American women were giving their time, talent, and treasure to the soldiers and civilians involved in and impacted by this global conflict. They served from their homes in the United States, collecting clothes for European children orphaned by military combat and by atrocities against civilians. They also served abroad in France, Belgium, England, Serbia, and other countries as nurses, surgeons, chauffeurs, and truck drivers. Some of these early contributors are the focus of today's episode. Next time, I'll talk about women's service overseas to the U.S. Armed Forces and their families after the United States officially entered the war. In Part 3, I'll talk about volunteer service to civilians overseas. In some ways, the work that women did during the war was revolutionary. Many women experienced never-before-imagined levels of independence and responsibility. In the jobs that the war opened up to them, some women earned the highest wages they'd ever received. In many other ways, the work that women did, and the recognition that it received, was in line with traditional gender expectations, even when the work was done in an unusual environment. I first learned about this work in Gail Collins' book, America's Women, 400 Years of Dolls, Drudges, Helpmates, and Heroines. In that book, I was introduced to Addie Hunton, an African-American woman whose experience with the American Expeditionary Force demonstrates that, while the bars of race did bend at times during the Great War, they often remained firmly in place. We'll talk more about Ms. Hunton in Episode 2. But today, as I said, I'll talk about relief efforts before the AEF entered the war. The one thing I remember about World War I from high school history is that it started with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. As my history teacher likely explained, though I'd forgotten the details, the war didn't actually start then, but this event that took place on a sunny June afternoon in Sarajevo was merely the lit match that dropped on the powder keg of Europe. I won't attempt a presentation of the geopolitical situation in Europe in 1914, but if you are interested in such a discussion, you might want to check out a podcast that I just started listening to called The History of the Great War, and it goes week by week through the war. The first thing we need to know for our purposes is that on July 28th, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. In return, Serbia declared war on Austria-Hungary. The next day, the first bombs of the war fell on Belgrade. 
the capital of Serbia. Within months, typhus was raging, and up to 2,500 people were infected each day. The mortality rate was between 50 and 70 percent. By 1915, 150,000 Serbians, or 3 percent of the population, had died of the disease. Over 20 percent of Serbia's 450 doctors died of typhus. In April 1915, a joint medical mission organized by the Rockefeller Foundation and the American Red Cross arrived in Serbia to address the crisis there. They probably arrived around the same time as Ruth S. Farnham, an American who was living in England in 1915. Ms. Farnham is among the many American women who were already in Europe when the war broke out. These women included journalists, students, and tourists. Instead of returning to the safety of America, they decided to stay and help. Ruth Farnham had visited Serbia twice before and worked in a hospital on her second visit. She responded to a call by the Serbian Relief Fund for volunteers, but they rejected her application due to lack of training. However, Farnham was invited to go to Serbia by Princess Alexia Kara Georgievich, the American wife of Prince Alexis of Serbia. They were going to deliver the money and supplies they had collected for Serbian relief. When she got to Serbia, she took over a hospital storeroom supplied with shipments from American and English donors. With a staff composed of Greeks, French women, Americans, English, and Russians, she was able to reduce the typhus mortality rate down to 20%. They accomplished this by destroying vermin and segregating the patients. Before returning to England and then the United States to raise funds, she had an opportunity to join Prince Regent Alexander, who was there to see the hospital, on a visit to the front line. When they arrived, the commander-in-chief of the Serbian army informed Farnham that she was the first woman of any nationality to enter the reconquered Serbian territory. Farnham and her escorts watched a battle from a hillside, then walked across a no-man's land. She was permitted to give the signal for the soldiers to recommence firing on the Bulgarian trenches. Remarking on her boldness in this dangerous situation, the commander-in-chief told her she should have been a soldier. She later wrote, quote, With the shells screaming over our heads at the most exciting moment of my life on that famous battlefield in Broad, October 1916, I was made a member of the 1st Cavalry Regiment of the Royal Serbian Army. I was no longer a woman helper. I was now a soldier. And as I write this, the only American woman soldier in this great war. Farnham then returned to England to solicit more funds. She eventually made her way back to the U.S. to raise money for Serbian refugees in Corsica. About facing the Serbian Relief Committee of America, she wrote, If there was anything I did not know about refugees or hospitals for Serbians or general relief in refugee camps, that thing was not worth discussing. My work was done. According to conservative estimates, approximately 25,000 American women served overseas I'll share a quote from Into the Breach, American Women Overseas in World War I. So American women stepped off into the blue of World War I, armed and defended by their birthright, eager to serve, of no mind to be excluded from the action, the work, and the danger. American women set sail for England, or better still, the continent. Two American women who were not already in Europe, like Ruth Farnham, and stepped off into the blue, were Emily Simmons and Amelia Peabody Tylston.
A fellow worker described Simmons, who had been born in England but raised in New York, as a, quote, delicate, small-featured, curly-haired, pink-cheeked, soft-voiced slip of a girl dressed in a covert khaki coat and a big Stetson hat when she arrived in Serbia in August 1914. Simmons was sick with typhoid herself for two months, attended only by an Austrian prisoner. After she recovered, she was performing operations, which she had never done before, and cooking for 1800 on board a ship that was followed for two days by an Austrian airplane that was dropping bombs. Simmons set up multiple canteens for soldiers. Simmons was eventually joined by Tylston, who had traveled to England, France, Italy, and Greece before arriving in Serbia, where she served soup to soldiers on their way to the front line. She wrote that the soldiers were much pleased as it is the only hot meal they get on their way to the front, about six days in all. I should very much like if the Red Cross or Serbian Relief would supply funds to start a canteen at one or two of the stations to give soup to all of the soldiers going to the front. I could get it going in a few days and there would be no red tape or money wasted. And I really think it would do a lot toward keeping the men from getting sick. Traveling for two days in unheated boxcars is no joke. And if you have no blanket, if only I had a lot of money, I could go ahead without waiting for anything. Talston did receive resources to help the soldiers, thanks to friends at home who responded to her pleas for supplies and to funds collected in England by Flora Sandis, an English officer in the Serbian army. Anne Talston succeeded in arranging to open canteens for soldiers and had clothes delivered to troops. In an April 1918 letter, she reported, I also gave out about 30,000 pieces of underclothing, stockings, and other things sent by the Canadian Red Cross. Coming back, I walked 37 kilometers and arrived at a station at half past 7 p.m. to find the train had left 10 minutes before, and I had to wait till 1 in the morning for the next train and travel all night in a boxcar that was usually given to horses. Talston died in Serbia of pneumonia in February 1920. Her mother would describe Amelia's methods as, quote, direct and forceful, shortcutting the devious path of officialdom when possible, or even impossible. I've shared a few examples of enterprising women who took overseas relief work into their own hands. The number of women who did this is unknown. But about 5,000 women joined agencies that we know very well, like the YMCA and the American Red Cross. We'll get to those volunteers in Part 2. American women also did a great deal from their homes and neighborhoods, and much of the benefit went to France and Belgium. At 7 p.m. on August 2nd, Germany issued an ultimatum to neutral Belgium to allow passage to France. At 7 a.m. on August 3rd, Belgium responded with its refusal. Germany declared war on France. 25 hours later, German troops crossed into Belgium, which borders Germany on its east and France on the west. Within weeks, Belgium's 7.5 million residents were running out of food. The densely populated nation had produced only 20% of its food. The balance had been supplied by trade with other countries, which came to a halt after the invasion. Much of the food Belgium did produce went to feeding the occupying force or was destroyed. Edward Eyre Hunt, an American diplomat, described the situation thus. 
The harvest was being gathered as war broke on the country, and the ripe crops were left standing in the fields where they were trampled by the armies or left to rot. Belgium, on July 31st, was a land of intense activity. A week later, it was a land of the unemployed. July 31st found 1,757,489 men, women, and children occupied in upwards of 700 industries. 1,204,810 people were tilling the land. August 7th found practically every man, woman, and child on farms, in fields, on canals, on railroads, in every village, town, and city, suddenly idle, without work, and without food. Great Britain later imposed a naval blockade of shipments, including food, from Germany and its occupied territories, including Belgium. While Germany and Great Britain argued over who was to blame for the starving Belgians, the wealthy American mining consultant and financier, Herbert Hoover, basically took it upon himself to feed the nation. He and his family were in London when the war began. Researching this topic was very eye-opening to me, as far as Hoover is concerned. I pretty much only knew him as the president who came before FDR. Even though he's not a woman, and not exactly an ordinary American, the Belgian relief effort was on an unprecedented scale, and I believe it needs to be mentioned in a discussion about World War I relief. Hoover used his personal wealth, management skills, and professional contacts to run what a British official called a piratical state of benevolence. We can get a sense of the situation in Belgium, as well as Hoover's connections and efficiency, in this October 26, 1914 letter to his wife, who had returned to California. Over one million people on breadline in Belgium at present moment with supplies estimated to last one to three weeks. While we are securing some supplies here for emergency purposes, real situation cannot be met without direct exports from states, and we shall require upwards of 20,000 tons of foodstuffs mostly. Can you interest prominent San Franciscans to present shipload food from California? I can think of no greater contribution to this occasion of world stress than a food ship front California and, if possible, one from Oregon or another from Washington. It might be pointed out that our commission is largely Californian and that we should have support of our own state. Could also make some claim as to Oregon in my connection. The Oregon connection that Hoover refers to is the six years he lived in Oregon as a boy. He wrote that letter a few days after the founding of the Committee for the Relief of Belgium, or CRB, of which Hoover was the chair. The CRB raised money from governments and individuals to purchase food from around the world for the Belgian people. At one point, the CRB was purchasing $1.8 million of food per week. The food was shipped to the port of Rotterdam in the Netherlands, which was neutral during the war. From there, the food was distributed to Belgians by that country's Central Relief and Food Committee, that's the English name, and I'll use the abbreviated form of its French name, Comité Central, going forward. By December, a third of Brussels was receiving free food at more than 100 canteens established by the Comité Central and supplied by the CRB. Belgians were given ration cards, which entitled them to coffee, soup, and bread. 
Hoover began a program that distributed hot meals of bread and cocoa daily at Belgian schools. The CRB fleet flew its own flag, and once Hoover passed an initial round of strip searches, he had unparalleled leeway on the seas. He had a document from Germany stating, quote, this man is not to be stopped anywhere under any circumstances. In a November 1914 letter to Emile Franqui, the head of the Comité Central, Hoover itemized the CRB's numerous accomplishments to date. We have carried on with the assistance of practically the whole of the American press an enormous propaganda on the subject of the Belgian people. We have cabled to all associations of whom we could hear, stimulating them as to position. We have cabled to the governors of every state, asking them to see that such an association was set up in their territory, and we have so far the following results. I'll list just a few of the CRB's accomplishments by that time that Hoover mentions in the letter. 5,000 tons of food purchased with funds collected by the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, which would sail for Rotterdam on November 30. A complete cargo of maize from Iowa, quote, which is the chief product of that state. At least 9,000 tons of flour contributed by millers in the northern part of the Mississippi River Valley to be shipped from Philadelphia the end of November. And 2,900 tons of cereal from the Philadelphia Belgian Relief Committee, in cooperation with the Ladies' Home Journal, to be shipped on the SS Thelma. Hoover also wrote that the American Commission of the CRB had a women's division that had the, quote, cooperation of all women's clubs and societies in the United States, and tomorrow they are issuing an appeal to all of these club members to get on pushing food into the hands of the local organizations. As I said, this was a partial list and was only three months into the war. As the letter mentions, Hoover initiated a massive PR campaign to convince Americans to donate to Belgian relief. He encouraged reporters to play up the, quote, detailed personal horror stuff and hired famous authors such as Thomas Hardy and George Bernard Shaw to write pleas for public support. He also hired a movie crew to film the food lines in Brussels. The campaign worked, and women played an important role, as Hoover alludes to. Literally hundreds of women's clubs were formed with the purpose of providing some war relief. The National Patriotic Relief Society, the Surgical Dressings Committee, and the Vacation Relief Society are just a few. In addition to collecting money and provisions for war victims, these groups also started service training camps to teach women, mostly leisured middle and upper class women, map reading, camp cookery, automobile operation and repair, bicycling, signaling, and agriculture. Mrs. Elphinstone Maitland started the Blue Cross Fund to help suffering horses. Returning to Belgian Relief, one of the most well-known women's organizations, the Daughters of the American Revolution, collected $98,000 to feed 10,000 Belgian children for one year. In total, Americans donated $6 million in cash to Belgian Relief and another $28 million in gifts, provisions, and clothing. Edward Hunt recorded more details of the CRB's work and Belgium's dire situation, as well as the work of two women from the Chicago Women's Club. Belgium needed far more than bread. Thousands had neither clothes nor dwellings. 
millions had no work. People of all classes were cold and idle and ill. The task of the Commission for Relief in Belgium could not long remain a simple doling out of rations, for food was almost useless without other things as well. Clothing, fuel, dwelling houses, money, and good health. Typhoid and black measles were the first epidemics reported. In the neighborhood of Willowbrook, a town with 12,000 inhabitants, where dikes had been cut and the district inundated in a vain effort to keep the Germans out of Antwerp, 75 cases of typhoid were known, and others were suspected. Ernest Bicknell, director of the Civilian Relief for the American Red Cross, Henry James, Jr., and Dr. Wycliffe Rose, all representing the Rockefeller Foundation of New York, visited Belgium in December and prepared a report on conditions in typical communes. Before January 1, 1915, the Rockefeller Foundation contributed almost a million dollars to the work of Belgian relief and established a station in Rotterdam called the Rockefeller Foundation War Relief Commission to assist the Commission for Relief in Belgium. This station had charge of the sorting and shipping of clothes sent from America for Belgium, and among its volunteer workers were two American women, Dr. Caroline Hedger and Miss Janet A. Hall, who had served on the Chicago Health Department and were in Holland as representatives of the Chicago Women's Club. At my request, these ladies came to the province of Antwerp as volunteer health operators. The winter was cold and damp as an icy sponge, but Dr. Hedger and Miss Hall set out at once with a supply of their own vaccine, for the scene was of the most important epidemic. At Willowbrook, they lived for two weeks in a tiny suite of rooms over a Flemish estaminet, where mold was so thick on the walls that one could scrape it off with one's fingers. In two weeks' time, they never once were thoroughly warm, although they were admirably dressed. Yet Belgians lived through the winter clad only in cotton and wearing carpet slippers. The two devoted women went into every house where a typhoid case was known or suspected. Dr. Hedger and Miss Hall had brought $3,000 worth of typhoid medicine with them, a gift from Dr. Mary Lincoln and the Chicago Women's Club. We have Dr. Hedger's description of a house they visited in Silvergard, where each of the seven family members was either sick or recovering from typhoid. Their house had been destroyed, and they had lost all their farm possessions but one cow. They were living in one side of a dirt-floored barn that belonged to some friend, and someone else had given them a bed. But why this family was living at all, I do not know. They had rushed away ahead of the Germans, with 180 Belgian soldiers at the time of the retreat toward Antwerp, and of the 180 soldiers, only 20 got out alive. Yet this family had come out intact and survived typhoid fever after that. There were tears in the eyes of that mother, almost the only weeping we saw in Belgium. The visit was very successful, and Hedger describes their host's appreciation. We were invited to a Sunday dinner at the house of the acting burgomaster, Mr. Persons. All the blinds were down, so we ate by artificial light. It was a small and simple party. Each gentleman had an American button in the lapel of his coat, and the ladies wore Belgian and American colors. After dinner, we were invited to the parlor for coffee. 
as the custom is, and there hung from the ceiling was a great silk American flag with President Wilson's picture on the wall beneath it. How they got this flag in that little town, I do not know, but there they were. As soon as we had had our coffee, the door into the hall opened, and there came in a procession headed by four little children, two boys and two girls, two carrying flowers in their hands, and two with their silk school flags, their Belgian flags. Then I understood why the blinds had been drawn. Belgians were not allowed to display their flag in public in any way, so they had been obliged to bring them in in the night. The little children advanced and read a Flemish address, thanking America for the Christmas ship and presenting us with their flowers. I replied through the interpreter and supposed that was all. But the children fell back after presenting the flowers, and then the secretary of the town council read a letter of thanks that was one of the most exquisite bits of English I ever heard. It was not absolutely neutral, so you will have to wait until the war is over before you can get the exact wording of those thanks. After this reading, wine was brought, and each gentleman came forward, touched glasses, bowed, and gave his thanks individually to America. They apologized because those beautifully arranged flowers were artificial. They said their greenhouses had all been broken in the bombardment, and they could not express in beautiful flowers, as they might do in days of peace, their gratitude to America. After 1915, CRB aid extended to northern France, where two million people were trapped behind the Western Front. At one point, the CRB was serving nine million people inhabiting an area of 20,000 square miles. Among the nine million were the estimated 200,000 French children who lost one or both parents in the war. They had taken shelter, quote, in bakers' beds, in train conductors' beds, in any corner where a good woman was found who would give them a scrap of food. Women across America collected money to send to these orphans and formed sewing circles and knitted clothes for them. Numerous agencies were formed to aid French citizens and soldiers during and after the war, including the American Fund for French Wounded and the American Committee for Devastated France. In 1915, a group of prominent French, French-American, and American women in France formed the French-American Society for the Welfare of Wounded French Soldiers. These women fed convalescent soldiers who needed special diets and were unable to eat the meals prepared by their military. The food was either transported from a central location or, in the case of larger hospitals, prepared in a special kitchen. Between 1916 and 1919, American Isabel Coolidge worked for the American Ambulance Field Service, which transported wounded soldiers from the front lines to the American hospital, which was on the outskirts of Paris. She also worked for the Association des Dames Françaises. She wrote the following about her experiences. In June 1916, with an appointment as a nurse's aide in the American ambulance at Neuilly, I started for France. Everything was new and rather terrifying, especially the inside of a hospital, which I had never seen before. After six weeks of carrying water, my ambition mounted higher. There was a chance to work with the French. I joined the Association des Dames Françaises, one of the three branches of the French Red Cross, 
and worked with them from then on. They sent me first to a small hospital outside Paris at Saint-Germain-en-Laye. It was a first-category hospital and received severe cases. A Red Cross hospital means that the men are better cared for than in a military hospital, but also that it is harder work on the nurses, for there are no orderlies. The dressing of wounds was only one of our many duties. We made the beds and served the meals. We washed the men and the floors. Our installation was supposed to be modern because we had one faucet of running water on each floor. At least we had until it froze. Fuel was scarce that winter. At one time we had not enough to cook the men's food. With the winter, the work lightened. There was not much fighting and the hospitals of the South received most of the wounded. We had time to polish the floors, listen to the men talk, and get them chestnuts to roast when there was a fire. One of the consequences of the shortness of coal was that the gas company only furnished gas at certain hours and of such a bad quality that it was impossible to sterilize anything. If it had not been for the dressings we received from America, especially from the Surgical Dressings Committee, already sterilized, we would have been in a bad way. The tin boxes they came in were almost as precious as the dressings. The rest of the letter seems to describe the last year of the war, so I'm going to save that for one of the later episodes. And the precious surgical dressings that Coolidge refers to were prepared by the 300-plus volunteers at Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston. Trained nurses supervised the volunteers who worked several hours a day folding the surgical dressings for French hospitals. The dressings were sterilized and packed in hermetically sealed tins. In October 1916, Amy Bradley went to France with the American Friend for French Wounded. She was a chauffeur and did depot work until July 1918. After the American Expeditionary Force arrived, Bradley joined the YMCA as a canteen worker. The word poilu she uses refers to French soldiers. The work of the American Fund for French Wounded in France consisted in receiving hospital and smaller quantities of supplies from America for refugees and in distributing them where they were most needed. More than that, it meant coming in contact with the French poilu and the French people and feeling their unquestionable spirit in the days of war, that spirit of fortitude and patience and savoir vivre, without which the Allies would have lost the war. I shall never forget two old people in a town on the outskirts of which were German trenches. The sector was a quiet one, so that about 300 of the original 13 and a half thousand inhabitants remained in the town. Before the war, the old people had kept a fairly large bakery. In 1917, they were still keeping a bakery, a tiny one. The rear of their house was no more. The houses opposite had been blown by several large shells across the street onto the old people's and smashed it in. It looks like a gravel dump, not too steep, up which one might drive a cart, the old man explained. In the front room of the house, the old people lived. Two shells had gone through the ceiling and out through the floor below, demolishing the houses on either side. The old people had no light and very little heat, and the town was shelled nearly every day. We stay, they said, because someone must make bread for the neighbors. We are old. We do not matter. 
we have had our life. We earned and bought our house. If we leave, we shall be refugees with nothing, another burden on the government. So it is better to stay. They thanked us for caring for their soldiers and for coming to see them, and presented us with their last few roses as a gift from France to America. I will continue Bradley's recollections, which include her YMCA days, in the next episode. The last volunteer we'll hear from today is Mary Dumaine, who was a nurse's aide at English Base Hospital No. 22 in Camier. Base hospitals were a good distance from the front line and a link in the chain used to evacuate casualties to extended care in Britain. As such, they had to be near rail lines and also near ports. Dumaine's service began in July 1917. That month, the British renewed the offensive on Ypres, spelled Y-P-R-E-S. It's also known as Third Ypres. The Germans used mustard gas during this battle, and each side suffered 35,000 deaths. In the letter, you'll hear the word blighty, a slang for Britain or England. It was also slang for a serious wound that merited being sent home to Britain, but it seems to have the former meaning in this letter. Life in a British Army field hospital would have been monotonous, I imagine, if there had not been so many changes of patients. Unless a man was too feeble to be moved, he would be patched up and sent to Blighty within a week or two. Or, if he were more slightly wounded, he was kept so that in a week or more he could be ready to report to his depot for active duty. As there were many changes, in fact, there were convoys coming in nearly every night, we could look forward every morning to a new element in the ward. Perhaps it would be five or six empty beds, which meant so many more had been able to go home, though more than likely what empty beds we had would be quite filled up. Except for this constant change, the hospitals under the British were run as much like a civilian one as the supplies would permit. Beds counted for everything. If they were not lined up just right, we would be sure to hear from the matron or colonel. Sometimes I think the war was won because our beds were so correct. I have had to pull as many beds apart as any other beginner ever did in a training hospital. I had read much about untrained girls, having full charge of a small hospital, containing from 20 to 40 beds, doing all the work, and with a visit from a director once in a while. I never saw any of that, however. In fact, each ward had its head nurse and assistant, besides an RAMC, Royal Army Medical Corps, trained orderly, and two or three convalescent patients who were retained as helpers. Etiquette was as necessary there as it was at general headquarters, and inspections were as rigid as though we had all the luxuries of a modern city hospital. The hours were arranged so that every nurse and voluntary aid detachment had three hours off of duty, or when we were rushed, two at the least. We began in the morning at 7.30. At 12 and 1 there were luncheons, so that the nurse could arrange for someone to be on the wards all the time. In the afternoon we had our off-duty from 2 to 5 and 5 to 8, or once a week we had a whole afternoon off, so the other nurse had 10 to 1. The matron always insisted that we have our regular time off duty, for she argued she got more efficient work from the nurses if they were perfectly fresh all the time. 
When I first went into the wards, I was simply amazed at the incomprehensibility of the language. Every other man would ask for, say, a drink of water in a different language. Lancashire, Yorkshire, Devonshire, Scotch, all going at once, too. I never believed that the, quote, English language, as it is written, was as strange as it looked, but I really believe it sounds stranger. Dumaine describes the different dialects that the soldiers spoke and their numerous heated arguments. Tommy is slang for a British soldier. I used to think they had personal grudges against each other, but if one of them should happen to not have a cigarette, another would throw him his whole packet. To see them lead each other into the ward was a revelation in itself. Especially during a rush, a man with a badly wounded arm would come slowly into the ward with the arm of a comrade around his shoulders who had been wounded in the foot. They shared everything, those boys, even to their mail, especially their home papers or magazines. I loved it when a jock received a box from home. He would look around, and whatever jocks were there, that is, if there were not too many of them, and say, Jock, come here, and they would have a grand time remembering. Those boys were simply marvelous, the way they stood for the taking off of bandages from sore wounds or the probing for a foreign body. They would all lie all day in an uncomfortable position if they could not move, and when they were asked why they did not call someone's attention to it, they would say, Oh, you are too busy, sister. I didn't want to be bothering you. But they would grouse, complain themselves blue about the weather or the food, for as they say, it's the soldier's only privilege. From start to finish, Tommy is a fatalist. He says, if there's a piece of shrapnel with my number on it, it will get me no matter what I do. So he is very much unconcerned under a bombardment and only grouses during an air raid because he will not be allowed to light a cigarette. During the last two years, he would say, the first seven years of war will be the worst, and that war is a profession nowadays, and was quite prepared to spend many more years at it. In spite of all the horror, I think he will rather miss his army life. By now it had become impossible for the United States to remain a neutral power. President Woodrow Wilson had run on an anti-war platform in his 1916 re-election campaign. But between the sinking of the Lusitania and the Zimmerman telegram, it was practically impossible to keep American troops home. As the men crossed the ocean, women continued to cross, now to serve their countrymen. We'll hear about their service next time. The entry from Mary Paxton Keeley's diary from the episode intro was read with permission from the State Historical Society of Missouri. The accounts by Edward Hunt and Dr. Caroline Hedger are from Hunt's 1916 book, War Bread, a personal narrative of the war and relief in Belgium. Many of the letters and narratives in this series are from the book, The Overseas War Record of the Windsor School, 1914 to 1919. In the quotes related to the service of Amelia Tylston, Rachel Farnham, and Emily Simmons are from the book, into the Breach, American Women Overseas in World War I. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com and check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. 
American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening.